God, we look to you as we look into the text, and we look to you because we need you. We're in need of you to show yourself to us this morning, to show us your word, to show us Christ, to to let us see and understand what it is that you've done, how it is that you've worked to bring us life with yourself, and what that means in terms of our posture to the world around us. So help us think through these things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so over the course of the last couple weeks, we have seen this command from Jesus to love one another. We've been talking through that. And and to demonstrate that love clearly to the world around us, that's another aspect of God's love. How do we demonstrate that to the world? And yet there's no shortage of confusion, as we've even stated up to this point, as it relates to the concept of love in our time. So a couple weeks ago, in our men's study on Wednesday night, Matthew helpfully shared a section from a book entitled The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca McLaughlin is, um, well, she's Cambridge scholar, PhD Cambridge, theology degree from Oak Hill Seminary in London, contributor at TGC, very wise, very helpful, very winsome in helping us think through what does it look like to engage surrounding culture. Had the chance to read much of her book this last week. And here's a quote that Matthew shared that I I, I would like to share for our time here. She writes, my eight-year-old held a bracelet she'd found at school, stamped on its rims, its rim were three words, love is love. On our drive to church, we pass a hair salon, its windows filled with posters of massive multicolored wings proclaiming love is love. Across our neighborhood, Yard signs declare, in this house we believe, love is love. Now, she quotes more signs at this point that she sees, but we've trimmed this down both for our purposes as well as for timing. So we believe that love is love. Signs like this, McLaughlin writes, sketch out a secular creed or statement of belief. There's a statement of belief that our culture has. It centers not on God, but on diversity, equality, and everybody's right to be themselves. And she goes on to write, listen, Christians can sometimes hear slogans like this, love is love, and it can cause them to grab a hammer and and drive these signs down into their yard. Put it out front for everyone to see, in full agreement with, or other Christians will grab hammers to use them to flatten other people's signs, wage war in a particular kind of way. And so what do we do to engage surrounding culture? Well, I think McLaughlin's book is really attempting to help its readers, and this is what she says, disentangle ideas Christians can and must affirm from ideas Christians cannot and must not embrace. In other words, she's interested in making sure that Christians, and I'm interested in this, this is one of the things that I feel called to as a lead pastor in my preaching, in my time with people, making sure that Christians don't unthinkingly embrace, and that's an important descriptor, unthinkingly embrace the sloganeering of the world around us, but instead to think in a way that's actually shaped by, yeah, the teachings of Jesus, but also the person of Jesus, like who he is and what it is that he came to do, what, what he accomplished for us. Like our thought life needs to be shaped by that. 
Because I think it's true. I think Christians can grab a hammer and drive those signs down in solidarity with our neighborhoods. Just proclaiming love is love. Like, who can disagree with love? Right? Or it's a lot easier, even if we're not going to put the sign out front, to like the Facebook post and share it, to retweet, to hit that. See, make sure everybody sees that, that we agree with this broad statement. But listen, the text this morning, okay, so it follows this command from Jesus, verse 17, last week. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And yet, in the next section of text, the text we're in today, we come to find that the love the Bible calls us to comes at a cost to the way we live if we embody that kind of love. Like, it's not an easy love. It's not a self-serving love. It's actually really hard to apply. It comes at a very real personal cost. But a love, listen to me, a love that comes at a cost to something my heart desires, you know, that runs counter to something my heart wants badly, and even means I have to lay that thing down, that's a completely different kind of love than the one our culture describes. And so we start to see the problem with jargon, sloganeering like love is love because the same words are being used. Jesus talks about love, our love for the wor- his love for the world, his love for us, his command to us that we love one another. We're using the same word, but new definitions that we've snuck into the word now create an entirely different concept. While the culture holds out a concept of Love that never brings offense, that always accepts and affirms. Jesus holds out love that operates in a way that will often actually create a bristling effect because it's true love. It's actual love. And that bristling can and will come at a cost to those who follow Jesus. That's why we see this immediate contrast. Okay, so think of it this way. Jesus begins, this is my command to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's the beginning of last week's text. Last week's text ends, these things I command you, so that you will love one another. And now this section begins immediately on its heels. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Because the kind of love that Jesus holds out to the world can and does result in further hatred from the world. How is this possible? Well, okay, we're going to see this explained, that question in particular, explained in five parts in the text. Okay, five parts, beginning in verse 18, first part of verse 18, look there with me, if the world hates you. And so it's here that we see, first of all, the reality believers experience. This hatred from the world is spoken of by Jesus as a reality that believers experience. And this can be something, you know, this can be something that we're hesitant to talk about. And it's once again one of these features that preaching through a text, we preach through John, and and you know, so that, that means that when we get to this section at the end of 15, We can't just be like, ah, that's not really fun to think about or talk about as a church, so we're going to move past it. No, we're going to preach 
all the text, and that includes parts like this. At the same time, it's important to look at what it's not saying at the front end. This isn't saying Christians should not have relationships or friendships with non-believing people, nor is this in any sense suggesting to us that, you know, if you're here and you're a non-believer, this text is not communicating. You've got Christians on this pedestal, and then you've got the world, you know. It's not what it's saying. It's, it's actually talking about all of our hearts collectively apart from Christ. Like, this is a, a part of all of our stories, and it's reemphasizing the grace of Christ, but we need to note that at the front end of this, if the world hates you, like, this is not actually, and we'll see this conclusively as we go, it's not a conditional that leaves the notion of this hatred from the world kind of up in the air. It's the opposite, actually. And, and we'll see that together. This is, this is not an assumption here. Or this is not a, a conditional that maybe it will. It is a conditional, but it's an assumptive conditional. It's not a neutral phrase. It's saying... The world will hate Christians, and we'll see what I mean by that in a minute. So the purpose for beginning this way is to eliminate the surprise factor when persecution does break out. Because we do see that there's a conditional here, if the world hates you. But what kind of conditional is it? Like, what's it? We're going to see why. Okay, so Jesus wants to eliminate the surprise. He wants to accomplish what John says later in his first epistle. He says, John actually says in 1 John, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So that's the idea. And there are two ways we can be surprised by this. When Christians encounter persecution in the world, there's probably more than two ways, but two dominant ways during, that Jesus is addressing in this text that are, that are happening to the readers of John in the first century and that we deal with today. Okay? Each one is a kind of denial of this reality, the reality, reality of the believer's experience. We, we respond to this by denying the reality. And there's two kind of denials. The first denial is rooted in pride. And it has to do with how our own reputation, you know, how, how um, we often like to think we should be viewed by others tends to get in the way of our following with Jesus. Because we... We often tend to think, and so this is all of us, and, and you know, between these two ways of denying this reality, we can go back and forth between both, depending on the week, because this is our sinful hearts, you know? We might be pulled back in both directions, but it has to do with how we view our own reputation, how we like to think of the way we're viewed by others, because we often want to live in a world in which we think we're well-respected. So it's easier to deny the reality that those who hold to the scriptures, like full stop, in our current context are actually not well respected. The Christians who hold to the scriptures are thought of by the collective culture as hateful bigots. Like We've talked about this in weeks past, but it's a tough pill to swallow for us. So we deny it. We'll say something along the lines of, no, 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 the culture doesn't think that about me. You know, maybe some Christians who are a little overzealous in their application of gospel or whatever, in their, uh, not even gospel application, in their misunderstanding of grace, and they become so overly zealous related to like, their, they just always want to be talking about exclusive language. And all maybe there are extremists out there, and they're, they're not well respected, but certainly it wouldn't be me. Like, I'm well respected. 
So we deny it. Not only that, but in order to prove it, perhaps I think usually actually first to ourselves, in order to prove that we're well-respectable, we make a great effort to show the culture and the church and ourselves how enlightened we really are. And so we'll often, you know, we might punch right to show the culture on the left that we're actually really with it, that we actually really get it, you know, that we're, that we're in the know, that we're enlightened. You know, and, and I, I got to say, the scriptures, as we said before, and I want to I make sure we all understand, the scriptures are prophetic, like the gospel's prophetic on all sides. There are areas in which, you know, the political right and the political left both need to absolutely repent and throw themselves on the mercies of Christ. And yet often it's like we've got this approach where we just want to prove to the culture that we're with it. And so we're just constantly punching over here on this side. And the problem with this is, look, you can, um, you can really do this until you're blue in the face. You can do it all you want. But you need to understand that so long as you hold to the absolute, and we're going to see this unpacked in the text, but so long as you hold to the absolute authority of the word of God, so long as you hold to the same teachings that the church has held to unanimously, even across all three major branches about biblical ethics for more than 2,000 years, you will be hated by the world in the way that Jesus describes. So it'll be a losing strategy. Jesus does not want his disciples to be surprised or caught off guard by this or think that maybe there's something they can do to mitigate that damage in some way. In part because, as we're going to see, that surprise can then lead us to abandon the gospel because our reputations are too important to us. The idea that I wouldn't be respectable, the idea that I'd be thought of as weird, you know, or bigoted or hateful or whatever, that's too much for me to bear. And so... A denial of, the rea- of this reality actually leads to a denial of gospel. It comes at too much of a cost if it derails my well-respected reputation. But a second way we can be surprised by this statement from Jesus, Jesus coming immediately after this section on love with, if the world hates you, is rooted in fear. We're afraid of the notion of a world that hates us, We're afraid that what Jesus says here and what John echoes later in his epistles will mean that that something will be taken from us, that there'll be a cost to us in that way, that it's true, you know, afraid of what could happen if it were true. And so, you know, what do we do? What's our response? We live in a happy denial. Like, what do my kids do when something scary all of a sudden comes on television? You know, frustratingly enough, when that happens the most is like Sunday afternoon football. You're watching football on Sunday afternoons and like the worst horror movie commercials come on the screen. It's like, what are they thinking? But in any case, my kids are watching, you know, downstairs and we'll turn the volume down or turn the channel quick and guys turn away and, you know, what do they do? They'll close their eyes and plug their ears, you know, and they'll turn. We can often have this kind of a reaction to evil in our world. There's a, there's a kind of denial. It's fear-based. It's just like, this isn't happening. La, 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 just ignoring it. You know? And I'll tell you, this is especially common in more passive cultures. And we live in Minnesota. We live in a more passive culture. It's a documented response to fear. We've seen it play out again and again in history. We've seen it used as a literary device to show that this kind of thing happens. Like, for instance, there's this story that's told of a general that Joseph Stalin believed 
to be against him. And you know, this general didn't do anything actively to oppose him, just sort of a vibe he gave Stalin. But Stalin thought he just didn't like the way he was getting looked at by this guy. And in order to deal with him, to make an example of people who cross him, even slightly, it is told that Stalin hung him upside down at a, beginning, at, a, at a very busy train station, at the very top of the train station, right outside of Moscow, hung him upside down until he died. And the people would hear his cries diminishing every morning when they got on the train and every night when they came home from the train. None of them would look up more than once, right, for fear that the same thing could happen to them. But here's the kicker. Three months later, none of them could agree in the community whether or not the events had ever happened. Why? Like, it was right before their very eyes, but afterwards they're debating whether or not such a thing actually happened or if they had imagined it. How could that kind of a phenomenon take place? Because of how horrific the idea is. If that kind of a thing is actually happening, it can prompt an awful lot of fear, and it's a lot easier to go through the rest of my life denying that it happened than facing the reality that it is happening, right? And so it's easier to deny it. The same thing is, is seen in you know, my favorite Harry Potter book, Order of the Phoenix. The Ministry of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, they reject the whole idea that Voldemort is, is back. Voldemort returns. He's coming back. The evil Voldemort, he who shall not be named. But they start saying that's all a lie. That's all propaganda. Don't listen to it. They start silencing voices that are shouting out the return of Voldemort. Why? Because of the fear of what it would mean for them if it were actually true. And that fear brings them to not act at all. To be completely passive and let the evil just run right over them. But these kinds of denials are more than possible today. In fact, both are prevalent within the church. Some of us do not like the thought that others might not respect our reputation. So we say, surely not. Surely not. The world wouldn't hate me. Others might not like to think about the natural consequences of the trajectory of culture. And like, it's true. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, right? So it's like, our battle's not with other people. At the same time, we can... We can just plug our ears and shut our eyes and completely ignore the tactics that, that principalities and powers use in order to bring about evil in this world. What it means for parents today to raise their kids to follow Christ. What it means for the church's ability to operate as the church. So we deny this, that laws are passed and that certain things are happening around us? Surely not. Surely not. It's not that bad. This is dangerous. Because as Jesus says, our assumption should be that such hatred from the world toward Christians is the norm. And we'll see why in a minute. And it's particularly dangerous to deny it in either case because if our pride and fear grow to a point of valuing our reputation or not wanting to actually face the problem over against our value of Jesus himself, we're likely to bow out entirely. It can be a way for us to eventually deny not only the reality of the world's posture towards God and his people, but, but to deny the gospel itself. So Jesus warns us graciously, don't be surprised. Why should we not be surprised? Continuing verse 18. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So here's where we see 
This is not up in the air. It's not maybe the world will hate you, maybe it won't. Here's here's a, a situation where it wouldn't hate you if you were of the world. The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, here it is. Here's the statement. Therefore, the world hates you. So here we see a reminder that this is actually a reality. It's a present reality that all Christians face in all times. We also see, secondly, the reason believers experience it. Why must Christians experience hatred from the world? Well, centrally, listen, the world hates followers of Jesus because we follow Jesus. And the ultimate reason for the world's hatred of Jesus is that he testifies that its deeds are evil. Do you remember, I think Paul was preaching this section in in chapter 7, Jesus told his brothers he wasn't going up to the feast just yet, Feast of Tabernacles, not going up just yet. Verse 7, he said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus comes with a warning of sin. And our initial impulse to that news is hatred, setting ourselves against God as enemy, and we're going to see that more as we go. And the reason that the text tells us the Christians are not of the world isn't because we were never part of the world. You know, do you remember John's definition of world throughout his account? that we continue to come back to because he keeps using the word, right? It's this created order in open rebellion, active rebellion against its creator. It's not saying Christians are not of the world because we were never part of it. It's not saying Christians are not of the world because they kind of rose up and became better than it. The text is actually saying all of us were rebels against the good king. Every single one of us. It's not because we were never of the world, but because Jesus chose us out by his sheer grace. And that should really change our posture to be one that in the midst of such hatred and animosity toward Christians, our response is not to hate in return, but rather to demonstrate the kind of love that we're offered in Jesus that we talked about last week. I'm loved enough by him to offer the same thing to the world around me. And we offer that love in proclaiming the truth that Jesus demonstrates here. And it's easy to get confused here because... When we talk about this uh, reason, believers experience it, two realities can be true at the same time, and they have to be. And and the, the sad thing is, I usually hear these two realities in almost exclusive terms, like because one is true, the other can't be. It's just not the case, and it's not how Jesus talks. So two realities are true. One is, there are Christians who have acted and behaved like jerks in the public square, and that at least part of the reason they've received hatred from the culture around them isn't actually persecution, but because they were acting like jerks. And we've talked about this before, but it's true. And I need to bring it up because I think some of the the pushback to the reality the believers experience will be hatred from the world that comes from maybe the part of us that wants to say, my reputation isn't so bad, I'll always be well-respected, is this idea that, well, yeah, Jeremy, but you're leaving out this, there are a lot of Christians that behave badly. No, I totally agree. Absolutely true. So 
And look, I totally agree. We can't be blind to the reality that it's more than possible. In fact, it's sadly common for Christians to behave badly, to really behave very immaturely. And that's particularly grieving because we have Christ and we have his spirit and we have the good news that shapes us and shapes our response. And you know, often people will ask me, because we believe in what we call the doctrines of grace at Gospel Life Church, which is to say that though we were depraved, though we were far off, though we had set ourselves against Christ as enemy, by his sheer grace and nothing else, he came and selected us out, which is precisely what Jesus talks about here. So people will say, why do these doctrines of grace matter? And it's like, this is why, this is why, because listen to me, how can we take seriously Jesus' remarks here to us that once we are of the world, once we are rebels who are part of the created order in open rebellion against its creator, and yet out of sheer grace, not because we were so lovable, because we weren't. Not because we were so different from everyone else, we weren't. Not because our hearts were so soft, they weren't. Not because of anything about us, but only his sheer grace. He chose us out. How can we both take that seriously and behave in this world as though we're either better than others, interact in this world without love and grace and kindness and compassion toward those who are in the same situation we were in? Like the doctrines of grace actively shape the way that we engage in the world. So that's true. Christians can behave badly, and when we do that, we're not walking in line with the gospel. And, you know, it can damage other Christians' testimony. That's true, too. You know, when, we, when our testimony is bad, people won't hear our, our testimony, Christians' testimony. So that's true. And at the same time, it's also true, another reality. It's also true that part of love and grace, part of like, so we need to engage with love and grace, part of that is truth. Like these are not separate things, you know? And while it's true that Christians can be absent love and grace in the public arena by behaving badly toward non-believers in culture, it's also true that Christians can be absent love and grace in the public arena by refusing to speak truth on controversial matters or somehow seeing truth as being at odds with love. And that is not loving. Like, friends, you can't be loving and withhold truth, especially on matters of eternal significance. And if speaking the truth comes at a cost to you, if it comes at a cost to your reputation, for instance, but you choose to do it anyway because you love the other person so much and you know that they need to know the truth related to their sin and how it separates them from God, and so you speak it, knowing that it's going to come at a cost to you, then that is by definition an act of love. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that this is at least part of the dynamic here. It's part of the reason we withhold. Withhold gospel. Withhold conversations with our non-believing friends about sin, separating us from God. It's part of the reason we withhold that we love, to, we love to dress it up with the word love and make it seem like the timid way that has, conveniently, it has no cost to me, is also the loving way because I didn't press in on something that could have convicted someone, so it's loving. It's just not true. In reality, withholding the truth because of a fear that it might be hard for others to hear and therefore cost me something in terms of my reputation in the workplace or in the neighborhood or in my family, that's not loving. That's the opposite. Like, it's definitionally selfish. And I'm speaking to myself right along with you. I hope you understand. 
It's it's at least in part a self-centered decision, not an others-centered decision, because if it was truly others-centered, which would be loving, it would seek what they need the most. It's deciding not to give someone what they deeply, deeply foundationally need because of how it affects me in the end. So Christians need to show love because we realize the love we've been shown. We need to be compassionate towards those who are in the same situation that we were in apart from God's grace and mercy. But by definition, part of that love has to include our testimony to the truth and there's no getting around it. And that truth is important for our hearts too. And this is where we now move thirdly This brings us to the remembrance that we need. So the reality the believers experience, this is a reality, hatred from the world. The reason we experience it is we follow Jesus. And now we see the remembrance that we need. Like Jesus is going to show us how following him shapes him in this next set of verses, starting in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Listen to this. So, Okay, so if we still want to take verse 18 as a kind of conditional, where it's like, if the world hates you, so maybe not, maybe it won't. Listen to the grammar of the kind of conditional Jesus is using. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? You know, If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the words the disciples are instructed to remember, there's a remembrance believers need, is what, it actually comes from John 13, a direct quote from 13, and I think Paul preached this text too. The idea here simply was to say, listen, if the master, if the person who all of us follow is completely content with washing his servants' feet, like washing the feet of those who are supposed to be serving him, serving them to ex- in extreme ways, then how could, a, how could a servant of that master go around jockeying for power and prestige and honor in some kind of a way that doesn't seek the needs of others, you know? That seeks first after their reputation, their glory, you know? Like, how could they think they're above what the master himself is willing to do? So here, Jesus takes that same principle, but he applies it to persecution from the world. In other words, just as you can't claim... To follow me, Jesus says, but also see yourself as above me by not serving others because I came to serve and give my life as a ransom. You also can't claim to follow me but see yourself as being above hatred from the world around you and like harm to reputation because of a stated belief that what the Bible says is true in the midst of your culture. Like, you can't be unwilling to hear and experience the kind of hatred from the world that Jesus experiences and also say, I'm a follower of Jesus, is what he's saying here. And this is really a warning, because going back to the the idea of the conditional, the if, and going back to the idea that we can often be surprised by this notion that the world hates us, you know, every culture and every time throughout church history experiences Different, every, every church history will, uh, moment in church history, the church will experience, experience different degrees and kinds of persecution from the world and hatred from the world, but it's always present. It's always present. So, as Max Stiles has, has said before, very helpfully, and I've quoted it here at Gospel Life Church quite a lot, but very helpful. You know, he said, Some cultures fear the raised fist, we fear the raised eyebrow. You know, and it's true. Some cultures fear the raised fist. They fear 
physical persecution, being thrown in prison, no food, being beaten, being killed. Some cultures fear, some Christians in some cultures fear the raised fist. We fear the raised eyebrow in our culture. Like people thinking that we're weird or bigoted or hateful, eccentric, whatever. So the degree of hatred from the world can look different from moment to moment, place to place, context to context. It's true. The degree of hatred can look different. But all our denial, you know, our denial of any hatred at all, it might be a warning to us. You know, the idea that I'm just not, I won't experience it at all. It could be a warning, according to what Jesus says here, because it's like, if you claim to follow him on the one hand, but then notice on the other that actually the world has no problem whatsoever with the things that you say. That you, you're really just championing everything they champion. That your reputation, therefore, is entirely in good standing with the world. You know, like, Jesus is saying it's very possible that's because you're not living in a way that's in line with the gospel. There's a warning there. You're actually so concerned with proving it to yourself and to the world that you're not a crazy person that you value living according to the world over against living in line with the gospel. It's important because look at what's at stake. Jesus says, and here's where we kind of see the grammar. Look at the text. This is in verse 20. If they persecuted me, and so this is the idea. If they persecuted me, and many of them did, they will also persecute you. Okay, and also, if they kept my word, that is to say, if they heard the truth proclaimed and believed my word, and some of them did, they will also keep yours. So what does that mean our task is as the church? Like, how do we respond in a time in which this kind of like animosity toward the church exists? What's our role in this? Our task is to proclaim the gospel. As we proclaim it, there will be many, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. That will be the response of some to gospel proclamation. But also, if they kept my word, they will also keep your word. So our role is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and proclaiming the gospel will always, always, always have two effects in the world around it. One will be, you know, we'll show people their sin and their need of a Savior. We'll show them their sin and their need of a Savior. And their hearts will be cut to the core. They'll be convicted. They'll turn away from their sin. They'll turn towards Christ. They'll enter glory. They'll throw themselves on his mercies. And we can be confident in that kind of a response from the world. The same level of confidence as a sower scattering seed that some will, will spring up from that, right? So like... We can be confident that, that the Spirit is active in proclamation of gospel. And that's one of the reasons why those of us who are convinced by the doctrines of grace, that God saves us out by his own grace and mercies, we should be evangelizing more and more and more because you know what? The Spirit does this. He's active in this way. He uses this proclamation of gospel. So it'll have that effect. Show people their sin in need of a Savior. Their hearts will, hearts will be convicted. They'll repent. They'll enter glory. The other will be We'll show people their sin and their need for a savior, showing them both the same thing. But they will so hate the idea that they are proclaimed by a holy God as sinners in need of a savior, they will despise the one bearing the message. They will despise the church. This is our calling. 
But it's impossible to carry out if we're in denial of what Jesus is teaching here. You know, and at least one of the reasons it's so hard is because we fail to understand what we're seeing when we look around and we see the world reject us. Like, we've got some category error issues going on here. We fail to understand that, well, first we fail to understand that we once rejected him, you know, like that it's not Christians are up here and everybody else, right? Like, this is all of our stories. So we fail to see that we rejected him, but by his grace he chose us out. It's just God's sheer grace. It's nothing special about me. But we also fail to recognize what's at the very center of the conflict between God and man, you know? Like, we, we still get tempted into thinking that we can manipulate the environment so that the world doesn't respond this way towards us. And it's usually about us. We, we, we talk in ways that make it sound like we're trying to be protective of God and his reputation. It's usually, though, about us. Right? And this is why Jesus shows us, fourthly, he wants to make sure we see and understand the rejection believers observe in the world. So there is rejection of Christ in the world. Why? Like, what are we observing? What are we seeing? Well, here Jesus takes uh, the same response that we saw earlier. And he says, this is the built-in response. It's a built-in response to the nature of God within the human heart. Starting in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So again, listen. It's built in response to the very nature of God within the human heart. The very idea of God. Because our sin and rebellion against him immediately positions us in this way. We don't recognize him as being our good king. So he's the good king and we're the rebels, but we don't see it that way. We see him as being the enemies and we're, we're on the, the, the righteous side, right? So our natural heart will be to reject him, to be his enemy. And, and, and some of what Jesus says here can be confusing because he says they wouldn't have been guilty of sin, you know? And we might wonder, what is he talking about? We know, surely, based on what he said prior to this, he doesn't mean this in an ontological sense, as though, like, they're not guilty of sin. Of, of course they are. But it's actually the opposite. Lest, in other words, listen, lest you try and claim, and this is something we all need to be reminded of often, I think, in our evangelism, in the way in which we approach the world, but lest you try to claim, well, if Jesus were standing right in front of me, if the conditions were somehow perfect in this world, I wouldn't reject the gospel, the world wouldn't reject the gospel, if Christians were polite enough and would stop speaking out exclusive truth claims all the time, the world would probably warm up to the idea of God. If the conditions were better, you know, if Christians stopped behaving badly and, you know, and, and just always focusing on, on sin, you know, that maybe we just got away from that and we just lived well in front of them and we didn't ever talk about sin, then the world would just kind of warm up to God. They start to think that maybe we have... No, because here you have Jesus himself, God incarnate, entered into human history. Who was he? The perfect expression of love. The perfect expression of love toward humanity. Standing in their midst, speaking to them, and still they hate him. 
Still they reject him, still they do not believe in him, still they persecute him. So how can we make that argument with a straight face? Jesus' words here have the same kind of ring as when he said it would be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you people. Why? Not because Sodom and Gomorrah are ontologically free of sin, but because here we have Jesus standing right in front of them, proclaiming the gospel to them, and still they don't believe, and yet somehow we think we can still manipulate things so that the world doesn't reject Jesus. You know? And it's important, because look, what does that mean? What does that mean we actually believe about us? And what does that mean we actually believe about God? And what does it mean that we actually believe about the world in which we live? Like, if we don't understand that this is really the nature of the world's rejection, we'll probably be tempted to think that the reason for our acceptance of the gospel was because we realized something. We were clever enough, we figured something out. Right? It's about our reputation being good. Or, we'll be tempted to think that if we just act a certain way, the world will come around. Neither one is true. But if this is the nature of the world's hatred of Christ, if it's embedded in their very identity as those who are fallen, those who've rejected him, those who are depraved, those who cannot possibly turn toward him apart from grace, what do we do? Like, how do we faithfully proclaim him? It seems like such a tall order. How do we respond? The answer is, not on our own. This is where we see, fifthly, finally, the remedy we, we apply. The remedy that believers will apply in the midst of the situation, starting in verse 26, into chapter 16, verse 4. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, to, comes you may remember that I told them to you. What's the remedy? What's the remedy for speaking truth to a world that fundamentally rejects Christ and knowing that in the midst of that proclamation, it might, it might affect my pride and my fear, right? It might, it might cause me to lose my reputation. It might cause the world to think I'm crazy. It might make me face the reality rather than just, you know, plugging my ears and my eyes and turning aside. Like, what's the remedy for that? It's the more powerful reality that the reason we know God is that by his sheer grace, what's made him known? The Spirit of God, he made him known to us. And that he's the one who will speak through us to the surrounding world. Like the truth about who we are apart from God and who he is and what he's done for us, that we might know God and live with him, is disclosed by the Spirit, by grace, that we might know him. And it's disclosed then to the world by the same Spirit through us. It's not our strength. And that's really a gospel remedy because, listen, Jesus tells us explicitly now the reason he discloses these things is precisely what he's been saying, what we've been saying this morning. If we're surprised that following Jesus comes at this kind of a cost in the surrounding world, if we're surprised that it'll come at a cost to a reputation which we value so deeply, if we're surprised that following Christ will come at a cost of a world that thinks we're crazy, that we've gone around the bend, that we're hateful, that we're bigoted, that we're exclusionary, if we're surprised that following Christ can result in a world actively persecuting us, 
The chances are much greater in the midst of that surprise that we will fall away. Why? In order to keep those things intact. And listen, John's writing this to groups, to, to Jews and God-fearing Greeks scattered abroad who have already seen firsthand their friends get put out of the synagogue, the cultural center in which they live, not only damaging their reputation but removing them from their social networks and business networks, shaming them publicly, in some cases resulting in stonings and imprisonments and even death. And so he shares what Jesus shared to him here. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. They will even think their persecution of you is the work of God. Like, it's good work. It's noble work. And we see that in our cultural moment today as well. Like, it's not that, I think in the 50s and 60s, 70s, it was kind of this way, this idea that Christians were the moral majority, you know, and like, you know, Christians live in this moral way. The world around us rejects the morality and kind of wants to be rebels and live immorally. That's how the world was positioned. Even when I was in high school, there was a sense of that. But now it's, it's different. Now it's actually the surrounding world finding biblical ethics to be immoral and unjust. And now there's a new morality in which putting a Christian in their place is actually a very noble task. They think they're offering a, offering a service to their gods, a service to the, to the gods of secular culture. Jesus says, he's told us these things so that when that happens, when those things are happening, we might apply the gospel remedy of remembering what he's made known to us by his spirit, his good news that he came to die, that we might have life in him, and that the life that he gives us is far more precious than whatever we think we're losing, whatever cost we think we're enduring at the hands of the world in which we live. Like, how is it that the gospel is a remedy to our idol of reputation, for instance? Like, we have this idol of reputation. We need to be thought of and well-respected. That's an idol. How does the gospel smash that idol of reputation? Well, what do we want? with that idol of reputation. Like, what is it that we think we want? We want acceptance. We want approval. We want love. Right? We want, we want to be a part of, not held off and be an outsider to. But we find all of those things so perfectly and completely in Christ who fully accepts us on the basis of His work, through whom God now accepts us by looking at Him looking at us and seeing Christ's finished work, giving us full approval, an approval that this world will ultimately never give us in a way that satisfies. Listen, not for nothing, but the reason we come to the table each week isn't for some boring exercise of, of repetition for repetition's sake. The reason, the reality of Jesus' death on our behalf, his, his body broken, his bloodshed, his union with us, the fact that he goes with us, the reason that, that bears out the kind of repetition we give it at GLC is because it's exactly what our hearts need in, in the world in which we live. To remember the approval that we have in Christ. To remember what he's done for us so that we might proclaim this by his spirit, not according to our own strength, because he goes with us. And so we come to the table in need, in need of this gospel remedy in which we're glad to proclaim it to one another. If you're a believer, this meal is for you. It's a proclamation of your belief your faith that Christ has accomplished for you what you never could have accomplished for yourself. And then now he does go with you. And though the world will hate you, he loves you perfectly. 
supremely, in a way that's satisfying. So we can come and with, with joy receive these elements and bring them back to our seats.